0: Hi, friends. Welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. All right. Today we start the Book of Mormon. Let's go. Three keys when we're looking at the Book of Mormon. First, we are going to take this text seriously. We're going to look at the the people in this text as real people having real experiences, and we're going to explore them as such second we're going to try and look with fresh eyes and see some things we haven't seen before and third as always we're going to look for Jesus and his ministry for us here all right now we're going to start with the big intro paragraph to first nephi this section actually comes directly off the plates and it goes like this the first book of nephi his reign and his ministry An account of Lehi, his wife Sariah, and his four sons being called, beginning at the eldest, Laman, Lemuel, Sam, and Nephi. The Lord warns Lehi to depart out of the land of Jerusalem because he prophesieth unto the people concerning their iniquity, and they seek to destroy his life. He taketh three days journey into the wilderness with his family. Nephi taketh his brethren and returneth to the land of Jerusalem after the record of the Jews. the account of their sufferings. They take daughters of Ishmael the wife. They take their families and depart into the wilderness. Their sufferings and afflictions in the wilderness... The course of their travels, when they come to a large, a large waters, Nephi's brethren rebel against him. He confoundeth them and buildeth a ship, and they call the name of the place Bountiful. They cross the large waters into a promised land, and so forth. This according to the account of Nephi. In other words, I, Nephi, wrote this. Now notice some of the themes already present in this introduction. Suffering, and iniquity, and it was Laman and Lemuel that rebelled. Nephi is going to build his narrative like a persuasive essay. This is not like an impersonal history. He is looking to prove a point. And there's several points, actually. One, Laman and Lemuel did rebel. And two, that Jesus has your back. But be aware of kind of how Nephi is building what he's building. Be aware that he's a real person, right? Right? After this, we have the the individual chapter headings. These don't come till 1981, Um, so just be aware of that. Those aren't part of the the initial text. But let's uh, go ahead and start with the most red line in all of Latter-day Saint scripture. I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents. Now, goodly is not a term we use a lot. So when you come across words and you're like, what does that actually mean? Go to the 1828 Webster's Dictionary online to see how Joseph would have been using it. You could also type Strong's Concordance uh, and, and the word in Google and it will link you to what the word means in Hebrew. Since the Book of Mormon lines up with the King James uh, word usage, it is pretty safe but not 100%. Okay? So in 1828, goodly means handsome, of form, beautiful, graceful, as in a goodly person. The Hebrew is similar. It means be beautiful, bright, and pleasing. In other words, Nephi is saying, I had good parents. Therefore, I was taught somewhat in the learning of my father. At minimum, this learning is literacy, the ability to read and write, which is quite rare back in the day. And having seen many afflictions in the course of my days, nevertheless, having been highly favored of the Lord in all my days. This is one of Nephi's thesis statements. Life is full of struggle and favor. This is one of the things I want you to look for. How do we have them both? Struggle will come no matter what, but how do you also feel the favor of the Lord? Just notice he's, he's going to fixate on how hard things were, but for him, afflictions are frequently tied to favor. We see affliction as a sign of God's disfavor, Because we've grown up in this Calvinist milieu that is not how Nephi sees things. So look for what makes the difference in this text, and you'll point out things that I don't point out. But how do we have both hard things and favor at the same time? Yea, having had a great knowledge of the goodness and the mysteries of God, therefore I make a record of my proceedings in my days. Yea, I make a record of the language of my father, which consists of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. Scribes or students, uh, contemporary or nearly contemporary with Lehi, were being trained in both Hebrew and Egyptian writing systems. So the the fact that he is too, not too out of the ordinary. And I know that the record which I make is true, and I make it with my own hand, and I make it according to my knowledge. For it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, my father Lehi, having dwelt in Jerusalem all his days. Okay, time out. Reign of Zedekiah. Let's place this in historical context so we know where Lehi slash Nephi's story is taking place. Right now at this time period, um, Assyria was top dog. Then a new Babylonian kingdom rose up and kicked the crap out of Assyria and reasserted their dominance. Because Babylon had been a big deal, then faded, Assyria took over, and now Babylon is coming screaming back. Now, a Babylonian resurgence really freaked out Egypt. They saw this Neo-Babylonian empire as a threat to their borders and to their trade routes. There's really nothing new under the sun. So they mobilized their armies and marched through Israel's territory. And Josiah, king of the Israel, king of Judah right now, the great hope for righteousness of Judah, went out to fight these invading Egyptians and in the process took an arrow that killed him at Harmagido Armageddon. So Josiah's younger son, Jehoahaz, succeeded his father on the throne. Three months later, the Egyptians' pharaoh, Necho II, returning from battles north of Israel, deposed Jehoahaz in favor of his older brother, Jehoah King, and Jehoahaz was taken back to Egypt as a captive. But then the Babylonians whipped the Egyptians' butts too. They whipped everybody right now. And Nebuchadnezzar besieged Jerusalem. While well, Jehoakim sorry, changed allegiances from Egypt to Babylon, because they are the bigger immediate bully to help avoid the destruction of Jerusalem. He paid tribute from the treasury, some artifacts from the temple, and some of the royal family and nobility were taken hostages, i.e. Daniel. You remember that story. But then Babylon failed to completely crush and invade Egypt, so maybe they weren't all that cool after all. So Israel's king Jehoiakim switched again, he kind of waffles back and forth, back to the Egyptians and ceased paying tribute to Babylon. So Nebuchadnezzar invaded Judah again, but Egypt, their new allies did nothing to help them. Bullies do not make good allies. And by 599 BC, Jerusalem was again under siege. King Jehoiakim died during the siege and was succeeded by his son, Jehoiachin. I know they sound a lot the same, but that's just what it is. And three months later, Jerusalem fell, right? Nebuchadnezzar replaced the rebellious Jehoiachin with Jehoiachin's uncle, Zedekiah. Ding, ding, ding. Okay? Okay. So this is where we're at in history. Right here, Zedekiah ruling uh, Jerusalem as a client state to Babylon. Zedekiah is 21 years old when he's made king of Judah by Nebuchadnezzar. And and basically, Israel is now a, a tributary province of Nebuchadnezzar and of Babylon. And the people in general don't like it. So Zedekiah looks around for support against Babylon Sees Egypt and thinks, Sup, good looking? Idiot. And even though the prophet Jeremiah and his royal advisors like Barak ben Nariah say it's a bad idea, and completely ignoring his older brother Jehoiakim's experience of getting hung out to dry by Egypt, Zedekiah enters into an alliance with Pharaoh Hophra of Egypt and rebels against Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar responds by invading Judah. Egypt predictably does nothing. The siege lasts 30 months with all of the accompanying starvation and depravity. And when the walls fall, Zedekiah and his family attempt to escape. They actually make it out of the city but are captured on the plains of Jericho. Then they force Zedekiah to watch the execution of his sons, then tear out his eyes so the last visual memory for the rest of his life will be the death of his sons. Then he is bound in chains like a fugitive slave and taken as a prisoner to Babylon where he stays rotting in a dungeon till he dies. Meanwhile, Nebuchadnezzar just wrecks Jerusalem for all their insolence. They destroy the city, legit still anything and everything of value, raise all the buildings to the ground, including the temple, and molest anyone they come across. Got it? Okay. For it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, my father Lehi having dwelt in Jerusalem all his days. You get where we're at now? And it came to pass that there came many prophets prophesying unto the people that they must repent or the great city of Jerusalem must be destroyed. Now, I don't think we have all the records of these prophets, but it's guys like Zechariah who in Zechariah 1-4 say, Do not be like your ancestors to whom the earlier prophets proclaimed, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Turn away from your evil ways and from your evil practices, but they would not listen or pay attention to me, declared the Lord. Or another contemporary, Obadiah. Obadiah says, Oh, what a disaster awaits you. Esau will be ransacked. All his hidden treasures pillaged. All your allies will, be force, uh, will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you, but you will not detect it. Or Habakkuk, look among the nations, watch and wonder marvelously, for I am working work in your days, which you will not believe, though it is told you. For behold, I will raise up the Chaldeans, Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation that marched through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Or Jeremiah, which you're more familiar with. Chapter 1, like all these others. And the word of the Lord came unto me, Jeremiah, the second time saying, What seest thou? And I said, I see a seething pot, and the face thereof is from the north, where Babylon is. Then the Lord said unto me, Out of the north, Babylon, Shall the evil break forth upon the inhabitants of the land? For lo, I will call all the families of the kingdom of the north, Babylon, saith the Lord, and they shall come and they shall set every one his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem and against all the walls thereof round about and against the city of Judah. And I will utter my judgments against them, touching all wickedness that they have forsaken me and have offered unto other gods and worship the work of their own hands. So here's what I'm saying. When Lehi goes out into the city of Jerusalem and says that he hears many prophets proclaiming that Jerusalem must be destroyed, one, this is not out of the ordinary because, well, Babylon had already captured Jerusalem recently, but you got guys like Zechariah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, Jeremiah, not to mention the ones we don't know about, preaching right then that this is going to happen. Wherefore, it came to pass that my father Lehi went forth and prayed unto the Lord with all his heart in behalf of his people. It's a scary thing thinking that they'll be destroyed. And it came to pass, as he prayed unto the Lord, there came a pillar of fire. Now the pillar of fire is the Shekinah. It's a clear Jewish marker of the presence of the Lord. We see it in Exodus 13, right? The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, uh, pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire. Like this pillar of fire that visits Lehi is an unmistakable experience of the presence of the Lord. And the pillar of fire dwelt upon a rock before him, giving him guidance, right? Leading him the safe way through this path of destruction, just like the children of Israel. And he saw and heard much. And because of the things which he saw and heard, he did quake and tremble exceedingly. And it came to pass that he returned to his own house at Jerusalem, and he cast himself upon his bed, being overcome with the spirit and the things which he saw. And being thus overcome with the spirit, he was carried away into a vision. Even that he saw the heavens opened, and he thought he saw God sitting upon his throne, surrounded with a numberless concourses of angels in the attitude of singing and praising their God. This is a very, very, very classic apocalyptic scene. Where you're in the vision, you're taken to the throne room of God. You just saw it in Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, right? I was in the spirit and there before me was the throne of heaven. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, right? Worthy is the lamb, okay? This is a classic vision scene. What Lehi is experiencing is consistent with what other prophets have in their vision experiences. But this, this is new. And it came to pass that uh, he, Lehi, saw one, capitalized, descending out of the mist of heaven. And he beheld that his luster was above that of the noonday sun. And he also saw 12 others following him and their brightness did exceed the, the stars in the firmament. Okay, so he is seeing the coming of the Messiah, the coming of this servant of God, this rescuer of God, right? And he has these twelve others following him, these are clearly apostles, but it is also the sense of twelve being the symbol of power of God. So following this man that Lehi sees come to earth is um is the power of God. This is really revolutionary in an Old Testament context. Yes, they believe in a messiah. But this is showing the Messiah coming to earth in a very different way than any of the previous things. So already 10 verses in, we got this kind of new fresh take on the Messiah, how he will operate, how he will come to earth, right? And they came down and went forth upon the face of the earth. And they came and the first came and stood before my father and gave him a book and bade him that he should read. Okay, the same thing happens for Ezekiel and John in Revelation. This is a classic vision move to give a book. It fits the form of what is happening to Lehi in this unfolding of the will of God. And it came to pass that as he read, he was filled with the spirit of the Lord, and he said, "Woe, woe unto Jerusalem!" That means uh, like destruction, tear, sorrow to Jerusalem. The fact that it's repeated twice emphasizes this sorrow is coming, for I have seen your uh, thine abominations. Now, this is a really clear pattern, okay? Uh, This is what prophets always do. You can go back and review the first chapter podcast in Isaiah to, to see this prophetic pattern. They condemn evil as kind of the first step. Yeah, many things did my father read concerning Jerusalem that it should be destroyed, and the inhabitants thereof should perish by the sword, and many should be carried away captive into Babylon. Now again, this shouldn't be a stretch given the circumstance. Daniel and many others are already taken captive into Babylon. This is not a bold claim. It's very much in line with what certain factions in Jerusalem believe at the time. And it came to pass that when my father had read... And seeing many great and marvelous things, he did exclaim many things unto the Lord, such as Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God Almighty. Thy throne is high in the heavens, and thy power and goodness and mercy are all over the inhabitants of the earth. And because thou art merciful, thou wilt not suffer those who come unto thee that they shall perish. Now, the form he's using is very apocalyptic. Remember John saying, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. It's very much in this format. But also notice the message right from the very beginning of this book. It is not a message of condemnation. It is a message that the all-seeing God is merciful and he will help you. Hold that, okay? That's big. And after this manner was the language of my father in praising his God. His soul did rejoice. His heart was filled for the things that he had seen, yea, the things that the Lord had shown unto him. And now I, Nephi, do not make a full account of the things which my father hath written. For he hath written many things which he saw in visions and in dreams. And he hath also written many things which he prophesied and spake unto his children, of which... I shall not make a full account, but I shall make account of my proceedings in my days. Behold, I make an abridgment of the record of my father upon the plates I have made with my own hands. Wherefore I have abridged the records of my father, then will I make an account of my own life. So th- this is a very, very first person account, which is very unusual for the, how the historical biblical text is written. It has more in common in some ways with a prophetic text, and maybe that has to do with how Nephi and Lehi are seeing themselves. Uh, but knowing it is so firsthand should influence how we look at the text. We should should be aware of that and how we're reading into it. Also recognize that there's more that Lehi had that we don't have because of the pages that were lost, and uh, that were, were summarized by Mormon and then lost by Martin. They're, they're, they, who, they could have looked more apocalyptic like John. They could have looked more prophetic in line with some of the things we see in Old Testament texts. We just don't know. But Nephi goes on Therefore, I would that you should know that after the Lord had shown so many marvelous things unto my father, Lehi, yea, concerning the destruction of Jerusalem. Behold, he went forth among the people and began to prophesy and to declare unto them concerning the things which had been. he had both seen and heard. And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him because of the things which he testified of them. For he truly testified of their wickedness and their abominations, again, classic prophet. And he testified that the things which he saw and heard and also the things which he read manifested plainly Of the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of the world. Like, this is sweet. And again, it's a common Old Testament thing. You are doing it wrong, but there will be a Messiah. Pretty much the pattern of every biblical prophet, right? But also this added caveat that it's not just for the redemption of the house of Israel, but the redemption of the world. Already the Book of Mormon is expansive in its offering of salvation. And when the Jews heard these things, they were angry with Lehi. Yea, even as with the prophets of old whom they had cast out and stoned and slain, and they also sought his life, that they may take it away. But I, Nephi, will show unto you that the tender mercies of the Lord are over all those whom he hath chosen because of their faith to make them mighty even unto the power of deliverance. So this is another thesis that you should look for here. You should look for how God operates in providing deliverance because it's not the way we expect him to provide deliverance. It's generally, Nephi argues, through tender mercies. Perhaps we would say small graces or little things that he provides deliverance where we expect these grandiose things. So be looking for that thesis. Also notice that there's not a lot of detail given on seeking Lehi's life. He seems to be okay-ish, I would say. It's not that we can tell that there's an eminent threat to his life right now. So who knows how severe this was, what it was, how serious it was. It's just not clear. But let's go to chapter 2 and see what happens next after this. Vision of the Shekinah, the presence of God, and the revealing that God did to him in this apocalyptic vision, right? For behold, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto my father, yea, even in a dream. And he said unto him, Blessed art thou, Lehi, Very similar to how prophets are are called, right? You can see the same thing kind of with Isaiah. Because of the things which thou hast done, and because thou hast been faithful, and declared unto this people the things which I commanded thee, behold, they seek to take away thy life. So it's a real thing, again. What's going on here, I don't know. And again, like this is interesting that it's happening not in a waking vision, but in a dream. It's clear that this is a nighttime night dream. And dreams do happen prophetically in the Old Testament. We have a precedence for this. Jacob, Joseph, Daniel, they all dream. I have had some dreams that I consider revelatory. I think like all spiritual experiences, they won't be a constant thing, but they will be possible. And we should make room for dreams as a spiritual experience Within our personal experience, God can communicate with you this way if you let him. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded my father, even in a dream, that he should take his family and depart to the wilderness. Okay, this gets tricky right off the bat. Your father comes to you in a very patriarchal society, so you do what he says. But he comes to you with the command to leave all of your things and go to the wilderness. Not camping in a car in a pool in slot the wilderness, the desert. And this is based on a dream, not a waking vision, a dream while asleep. And I think this starts getting at Nephi's claim in chapter one, verse one, of having seen many afflictions in the course of my days. He starts to build this case here. Came to pass that he was obedient to the word of the Lord, wherefore he did as the Lord commanded him. And just imagine how, erratic this seems from the outside. It's hard, right? And it came to pass that he departed unto the wilderness. Notice the first person prophetic right here. He. And he left his house and left the land of his inheritance and left his gold and left his silver and left his precious things. Okay, this is a very personal Lehi description right here of the things he gives up to follow the Lord and took nothing with him save it were his family and provisions and tents and departed the wilderness and he, Lehi, came down by the borders uh, near the shore of the Red Sea now this is a distance of about 180 miles traveling with camels you can probably do 20 miles a day which takes you about 9 or 10 days to get there. However, I don't know how many of you can go from traveling nothing to hiking 20 miles every day, so I doubt they made it there in even two weeks, but let's say it takes around that long. And he, Lehi, traveled in the wilderness and the borders, which are nearer the Red Sea, and he did travel in the wilderness with his family, which consisted of my mother, Soraya, My elder brothers, Laman, Lemuel, and Sam. And it came to pass that when he had traveled three days in the wilderness, he pitched his tent in a valley by the side of a river of water. So from the Red Sea, 9, 10, up to 14 days out, he travels another three days. And so they are well off the beaten path now, way out there. And it came to pass that he built an altar of stones and made an offering unto the Lord and gave thanks unto the Lord our God. This is intriguing. Lehi is not a Levite, but he is offering sacrifice here. And he seems to be offering a peace offering. And this is a sacrifice. The elimination of an animal in these circumstances, which soon, very soon, will border on starvation, really is a sacrifice and is not something to be done lightly. But it also shows something about the time period and worship of God that's not really found in the Bible. See, the the scribes in the Bible are trying to show why Jerusalem was destroyed. And one of their points was unauthorized sacrifices made outside of the temple and outside of the Levite priesthood authority were unauthorized and were apostate. Maybe that's one of the reasons for their destruction. They're searching for things. But there's plenty of archaeological evidence pointing to sacrifices from the time period outside of the temple. Add this to the fact that Lehi, a very faithful individual, does this sacrifice so casually, and Nephi does not comment on the strangeness of offering outside of the temple, seems to imply that the church in Jerusalem is not as uniform and clear-cut as sometimes the scribes of the Bible want to lead you to believe. Just think on that. And it came to pass that Lehi called the name of the river Laman, and it emptied into the Red Sea, And the valley was on the borders uh, near the mouth thereof. Now, remember, Nephi is writing this as a middle-aged man. He has long since split off from his brothers and had full-on wars with them by this point. That is coloring his view in his narrative. He is going to characterize his brothers right from the start in a way that pushes you onto his side of the story. All right? So it's going to start with this quote from his father. And quoting his father, not him, gives it more authority right here. And when my father saw the waters of the river emptied into the fountain of the Red Sea, he spoke unto Laman, saying, Oh, that thou mightest be like unto this river, continually running into the fountain of all righteousness. And he also spake unto Lemuel, Oh, that thou mightest be like unto this valley, firm and steadfast and immovable in keeping the commandments of the Lord. These two admonitions are very proverb psalm like, the tone of metaphor and poetry making the point. Now, this he spake because of the stiff neckedness of Laman and Lemuel. Notice what Nephi is doing here. The word stiff-necked is not a common one in the Bible. It occurs twice in Deuteronomy with Moses and the children of Israel. This is also part of Nephi's characterization. He's going to go back to the Moses well over and over again. He's going to paint himself as a new Moses and his brothers as the children of Israel. Okay, They're stiff-necked just like the, the children of Israel. And if you remember... What was the children of Israel's main problem with Moses? Murmuring. For example, Exodus sixteen. And the whole congregation of Israel uh, murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Then they murmured about food, or they murmur about water, they murmur that they wish they were back in Egypt. And look what Nephi says next. And he spake unto them, spake because of the stiff neckedness of Laman and Lemuel. For behold, they did murmur in many things against their father. So you know where Nephi stands. I'm Moses, my brothers are the children of Israel. So you have this kind of already developed schema in which you can place these two, is what Nephi's setting up. Okay? Um, for behold, they did murmur in many things against their father because he was a visionary man. Now notice the the repetition of the phrase next. Before he used the the phrase to say Lehi left his uh, possessions. And then he says he is a visionary man and had led them out of the land of Jerusalem to leave the land of their inheritance and their gold and their silver and their precious things. You hear it? And notice the next line, it's different. And since you already know the rhythm, gold, silver, precious things, this next line stands out. To perish in the wilderness. And they said he had done this because of the foolish imagination of his heart. So Nephi just did something clever. He sets up pattern and then he disrupts the pattern to draw your attention to how lamb and Lemuel are different. They believe they're going to die and they believe that their dad is being foolish. And to their credit, people do die in the wilderness. They will almost starve to death. They will almost sink on the ocean. And the command to come on this journey did come in a dream that cannot be witnessed by anyone else. So, Laman and Lemuel, being the eldest, did, key word, murmur against their father. And they did murmur because they knew not the dealings of God who had created them. This repetition is showing you they are like the children of Israel. And what happens to them is going to be like what happens to the children of Israel. Neither did they believe that Jerusalem, that great city, could be destroyed according to the word of the prophet. Now to their credit, Jerusalem hasn't happened yet. They've been attacked a lot and nobody's ever really destroyed Jerusalem. So there's basis for what they believe. And they were like unto the Jews who were at Jerusalem who sought to take away the life of my father. There are clearly divisions among the Jews those who they think they should align with, Egypt, Babylon, Babylon, nobody, all of these different varying opinions and who will win. It's just like today, you could have the same sort of opinions within the same families, within the same country, right? What Nephi is describing is not unusual. But notice what Nephi is doing here. And I'm not saying it's bad, I'm just saying be aware of it. They haven't tried to kill their dad Plus, we, we don't really know how extreme the original threat was. But in one sentence, Nephi has characterized his brothers as murderers, which they haven't done. But he might as well be wearing a white and them in black like in an old Western movie. He so clearly wants you to know he is the good guy and they are the bad guys. Okay, So just pay attention to how he's doing that. And it came to pass that my father did speak unto them in the valley of lemuel with power notice that he's no longer quoting his father he's summarizing and being filled with the spirit until their frames did shake before him and he did confound them that they durst not utter against him wherefore they did as he commanded them they were already doing what he asks but nephi is again painting a picture and my father dwelt in a tent this is going to be a repeated phrase and when you see repeated phrases ask yourself why is the narrator saying this what is he trying to get across repetition is the an ancient form of emphasis here my assumption is he's going to repeat this phrase to show that he Nephi and others have seen many afflictions in the course of their days and it came to pass that I Nephi being exceedingly young nevertheless being large in stature and having great desires to know the mysteries of God wherefore I did cry unto the lord And behold, he did visit me and did soften my heart that I did believe in all the words which had been spoken of by my father. Wherefore, I did not rebel against him like unto my brothers. Okay, notice what he's doing here. He's doing some juxtaposition where he's placing himself right next to the story about Laman and Lemuel so that the contrast is stark. And notice how he's characterizing himself, young, large in stature, spiritual, see it? definitely the hero of the story. Now, he kind of skips over the fact that his heart needed to be softened. He's clear that his heart did soften, but the fact that his heart needed to be softened, he kind of skips over that. But I do like Nephi's leap of faith to trust and let go of the hard-heartedness when it comes to his dad. He says, I spake unto Sam, making known unto him the things which the Lord had manifested unto me by his Holy Spirit, And it came to pass that Sam believed in my words. Now notice how Sam gets limited characterization. Okay, He doesn't get uh, all this picture painting that Laman and Lemuel get. He's Robin to Nephi's Batman. He doesn't play into what Nephi sees as the main conflict of us versus them. So he doesn't spend time there. And this is not out of the ordinary for Nephi. Nephi doesn't tell us his wife's name. He doesn't talk about his kid's birth. But it's also typical for the time. If it doesn't play into his main theme, he's not going to waste time on it. Uh, It lets you know that this is a persuasive essay more than it is just historical laying it out. But behold, Laman and Lemuel would not hearken unto my words. And being grieved because of the hardness of their hearts, I cried unto the Lord for them. Notice, Nephi had implied that he had a hard heart previously, but that's what grieves him about his brothers. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Blessed art thou Nephi because of thy faith, for thou hast sought me diligently with lowliness of heart. And inasmuch as thou keep my commandments, ye shall prosper and shall be led to a land of promise. Lehi is commanded to go into the wilderness well, uh, just like let my people go out of Exodus, taking them into the wilderness. You've seen this 40-day theme reimagined here, right? 40 years in the wilderness. And Nephi is promised to take them into the, the promised land, kind of just like Moses and Joshua is the one that takes them in, Lehi and Nephi. It, it's a repetition of this theme. It's a common way that it's taught here in the Old Testament, in the Bible in general, that, that's being used here. And it came to pass that the Lord spake unto me, saying... Oh, sorry. And this is also like an Abraham and Moses type thing. Okay, He's in line with the prophets. Yea, even a land which I have prepared for you, yea, a land which is choice above all other lands, and inasmuch as thy brethren shall rebel against thee, they shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. A very clear allusion to Moses trying to bring the children of Israel into the presence of God, but they would not go cut off from the presence of the Lord, cursed to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. They don't get to see the promised land, that sort of thing, right? Now, in their instance, they are going to see the promised land, but they're going to be symbolically cut off here, right? And as inasmuch as thou shalt keep my commandments, thou shalt be made a ruler and a teacher over thy brethren. Uh, he's giving you like a precursor justification for his position. For behold, in that day that they rebel against me, I will curse them even with a sore curse and they shall have no power over thy seed except they shall rebel against me also. And if, it be so, and if it so be that they shall rebel against me, they shall be a scourge unto thy seed to stir them up into the ways of remembrance. All right, how much of this is foreshadowing? How much of this is a middle-aged man reading back into the story? I don't know. But what is clear is that Nephi, as a narrator, is setting up how he sees the story to come. Us versus them. Nephi versus Laman and Lemuel. Jews versus Gentiles. Israel versus the world. God versus Satan. And Nephi is on the right team. Okay? All right. Chapter 3. And it came to pass that I, Nephi, returned from speaking with the Lord to the tent of my father. And it came to pass that he spake unto me, saying, Behold, I have dreamed a dream, in which the Lord hath commanded me that thou and thy brethren shall return to Jerusalem. For behold, Laban hath the record of the Jews, and also the genealogy of my forefathers, and they are engraven upon plates of brass." Wherefore the Lord hath commanded me that thou and thy brothers should go into the house of Laban and seek the records and bring them hither to the wilderness. First of all, this is not a simple ask. It is at least a month of hard travel there and back. Then convince a man to give the plates to you. Books in general are very rare and books of this nature preserved on plates are very, very, very expensive and rare. This is an impossible task. And now behold, thy brothers do what? Any guesses? That's right, murmur. That repetition is going to hook your mind to the children of Israel, seeing it is a hard thing which I have required of them. Facts! They're not saying anything not true. But behold, I have not required it of them, but it is a commandment of the Lord. Therefore go, my son, and thou shalt be favored of the Lord, because thou hast not murmured. Does he even get a chance to murmur? I don't even know. But notice the contrast, and it's set up in the text uh, where they're contrast, right? You see that contrast between Laman and Lemuel not murmuring, Nephi right here. And came to pass that I, Nephi, said unto my father, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded. For I know that the Lord giveth me no commandments unto the children of men, save he shall prepare a way for them, that they may accomplish the things which commandeth them. Now, It may seem like from time to time I'm giving Nephi a hard time, and I may be a bit. I'm treating him like a real person and how I'd interact with him, and you'll see that more later. But I want you to read with open eyes. But I love this aspect of Nephi. I love it. I love the idea of going and doing. We need more of this. Is it hard? Yes. Does it look probable? No. Will it suck? Yes. But do it anyway. We really need to just go and do more. You want to know how to make Nephi's thesis of suffering and being favored a reality? This is a key. Get out there and do. And it came to pass that when my father heard these words, he was exceedingly glad. Yeah, it's a money statement. For he knew that I had been blessed of the Lord. And I, Nephi, and my brethren, took our journey into the wilderness with our tents to go back to the land of Jerusalem. And it came to pass that when we had gone up to the land of Jerusalem, I and my brethren did consult one with another, and we cast lots, who should go into the house of Laban. This casting lots is a common way of receiving revelation back in his time. How it goes here is probably something like four guys, four sticks, whoever gets the short stick goes sort of thing. It could also be throwing dice, cards, whatever. This is a standard way of knowing God's will. standard. You find it in Leviticus, Numbers, Joshua, Samuel, Jonah, Esther, Chronicles, Proverbs. It's all over the place, and it's approved. It's standard. Here's my real question on this. Could casting lots still be a proper way for discerning God's will today? I'm being serious. If it worked for thousands of years, why not now? Maybe try it out. If you're stuck... Like, let's say you have two good options, and you just commit it to God. And you say, okay, this side of the coin is this decision. This side of the coin is this decision. Flip the coin and let God determine it and see what happens. Truly, I think it's more important than we go and do, than we sit and think. So maybe try it out. I think it could do good things for you. It came to pass that the lot fell upon Laman. And Laman went into the house of Laban, And he talked with him and sat in his house, and he desired of Laban the records which were engraven upon the plates of brass, which contained a genealogy of my father, Laban's father. And behold, it came to pass that Laban was angry, understandably, right, and thrust him out from his presence, and he would not that he should have the records. Wherefore he said, Behold, thou art a robber, and I will slay thee. But Laman fled from his presence and told the things which Laban had done unto us. And we began to be exceedingly sorrowful. And my brethren were about to return to my father in the wilderness. Right, 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 right. Like Laman has no claim on Laban's property. And it is tantamount to theft. Hey, uh, I like your Lamborghini. I want to take it with me on a trip. No. And if you touch it, I'll call the cops. That's exactly how the conversation goes down, more or less. But behold, I said unto them that as the Lord liveth and as we live, we will not go down to our father in the wilderness until we have accomplished the thing which the Lord hath commanded us. Wherefore, I, wherefore let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. Therefore, let us go down to the land of our father's inheritance. For behold, he left gold and silver and all manner of riches, And this he hath done because of the commandments of the Lord. This is the third time of leaving gold, silver, and uh, all manner of riches is mentioned. Is he setting you up to say, like, they left it, they left it, and that this sacrifice really is a path forward? I don't know, maybe. For Lehi knew that Jerusalem must be destroyed because of the wickedness of the people. For behold, they have rejected the words of the prophets. Wherefore, if my father should dwell in the land, after he had been commanded to flee out of the land, behold, he would perish. Wherefore, it must needs be that he flee out of the land. And behold, it is wisdom in God that we should obtain these records, that we may preserve unto the children the language of our fathers. I do not think Nephi means here actual language. The language clearly changes over time. We're going to see this later in the book. I think what he is referring to is the way of life of the fathers, like the way of life of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, etc. And also that we may preserve unto them the words which have been spoken by the mouth of all holy prophets, which have been delivered unto them by the spirit and power of God since the world began, even down into this present time. He wants to preserve this covenant way, this prophetic pattern. And it came to pass after this manner of language did I persuade my brethren that they might be faithful in keeping the commandments of God. And it came to pass that we went down to the land of our inheritance and we did gather together our gold and our silver and our precious things. Fourth time he says this. And after we gathered these things together, we went up into the house of Laban. And it came to pass that we went into Laban, and desired of him that he would give unto us the record which were engraven upon the plates of brass, for which we would give unto him our gold, our silver, and our precious things. Frankly, this is a much more reasonable request than the first request, given the plate's rarity and their value. Side note, I'm just curious. Where did Lehi live that all this stuff wasn't already looted after being gone for well over a month? Anyways, came to pass that Laban saw our property, that it was exceedingly great. So these guys are rich. He did lust after it in so much that he did thrust us out and sent his servants to slay us that he might obtain our property. So Laban's a jerk. And it came to pass that we did flee before the servants of Laban, and we are obliged to leave behind our property, and it fell into the hands of Laban. He stole their stuff, basically. And it came to pass that we fled into the wilderness and the servants of Laban did not overtake us and we hid ourselves in the cavity of a rock. And it came to pass that Laman was angry with me and also with my father and also was Lemuel for he hearkened into the words of Laban. Laman. Dude, can, can I just say time out real quick? I can relate to Laman and Lemuel. Yes, I would be furious about this. I get mad when I get boxed in in traffic. And they just lost everything. Now there is no hope for escape, really. Even if they leave their parents, they don't have anything. Not to mention the danger they just faced, the the fear of death and the adrenaline flooding through them. Wherefore, Laman and Lemuel did speak many hard words unto us, their younger brothers, and did smite us even with a rod. Now, in our cultural context, jerk move but not really out of character for an Old Testament era family interaction. Not great. These guys aren't exceptionally bad here. Also notice that how Nephi is making Laman and Lemuel one person. It makes his story of us versus them so much more simple. You'll see he sticks to this pattern. And it came to pass that as they smote us with a rod, behold, an angel of the Lord came and stood before them and spake unto them, saying, Why do you smite your younger brother with a rod? Know ye not that the Lord hath chosen him to be a ruler over you, and this because of your iniquities? Behold, ye shall go up to Jerusalem again, and the Lord will deliver Laban into your hands. And after the angel had spoken unto us, he departed. So this is a very direct intercession. Nephi doesn't make a huge deal about this, but this is a huge deal. Angelic, direct angelic intercession is very, very rare in the Bible. You get an ba- angel to come to warn Balaam, minister to Hagar, uh, minister to Elijah, rescue Lot, wrestle with Jacob. But overall, direct angelic intercessions are rare in this, the, any epic, but in this epic too. And after the angel had departed, Laman and Lemuel began to, What? That's right, murmur, saying, How is it possible that the Lord will deliver Laban into our hands? Behold, he is a mighty man. He can command 50, yea, even he can slay 50. Why not us? Everything they're saying is true. But honestly, who cares? When are you going to stop whining and start doing? Chapter 4. And it came to pass that I spake unto my brethren and said, Let us go up again to Jerusalem. Let us be faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. For behold, he is mightier than all the earth. And why not mightier than Laban and his fifty, yea, or even his tens of thousands? It's very poetic, very Psalms-like. What you're going to see is one of Nephi's favorites along with Isaiah here. Therefore, let us go up and be strong like Moses. There's your allusion. Nephi equals Moses again. For he, Moses, truly spake into the waters of the Red Sea, and they divided hither and thither. And our fathers came through out of captivity on dry ground. Um, and the armies of Pharaoh did follow and were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea. Like facing enemies, they've already left to the wilderness. This is the, kind of the next natural stage of this story if that they're reenacting. And behold, ye know that this is true, and ye also know that the angel has spoken unto you. Wherefore can ye doubt? Let us go up. The Lord is able to deliver us even as our fathers to destroy Laban even as the Egyptians. Now, I love this message and I think this is a message coming to you. The Lord is able to deliver you. Let that sink in. Now, when I had spoken these words, they were yet wroth. They're still upset. They just lost all their stuff. But they did still continue to murmur because Nephi is Moses and they are Israel. Nevertheless, they did follow me, just like the children of Israel did follow, even though they murmured, until we came to without the walls of Jerusalem. And it was by night, and I caused that they should hide themselves without the walls. And after they had hid themselves, I, Nephi, crept into the city and went forth toward the house of Laban. And I was led by the Spirit, not knowing beforehand the things which I should do. This is one of the most true things that has ever been said in Scripture. If you want something valuable, take that. We don't ever know what is going to happen. We always think we do, but we don't. You're led by the Spirit not knowing beforehand. Life is like that. We will never know. The sooner you start operating like Nephi, the happier you will be. You are never going to know how it's going to turn out. You're never going to know how somebody else is going to react. You just got to go. God can't do anything with a ship tied to the dock. Life only starts when you go, get out there and go. Harry S. Truman said, "'Imperfect action is better than perfect inaction.'" I couldn't agree more. "'Nevertheless, I went forth, "'and I came near to the house of Laban, "'and I beheld a man, "'and he had fallen to the earth before me.'" for he was drunken with wine. And when I came to him, I found that it was Laban. Dude, that is not your average bar trip. Pass out in the gutter, that takes a bit of doing. Blood alcohol is up there. And I beheld his sword. Note, Nephi, teenage boy, interested most immediately with his rad sword. That's the first thing he pays attention to. And I drew it forth from the sheath. You what? You just went through a drunk guy's wallet who's passed out? What? Wherefore the hilt thereof was pure gold. The workmanship thereof was exceedingly fine, and I saw the blade thereof was the most precious steel. Steel is very precious in this era. It is difficult to produce. It has never been produced on a large scale until late modern times. This truly is an exceptional weapon of incredible value. And it came to pass that I was constrained by the spirit that I should kill Laban. But I said in my heart, never at any time have I shed blood. And I shrank and I would that I might not slay him. Okay, the, the brutality of the world is much closer to the surface in Nephi's time. Killing a person hand to hand happens. Heck, it happened recently in the attack in Jerusalem. But I love his honesty here. I felt that I should do something, and I resisted. I didn't want to do it. And the Spirit said unto me again, Behold, the Lord hath delivered him into thy hands. He and I also knew that he had sought to take away my life. And he had not hearkened into the commandments of the Lord, and he had taken away our property. So this dude had tried to kill him, had stolen from him. There's a basis in uh, the laws of the time here. And the Spirit said, Slay him. The Lord has delivered him into your hands. The Lord behold, the Lord slayeth the wicked to bring forth his righteous purposes. It is better that one man should perish than that a nation should dwindle and perish in unbelief And Now, when I Nephi had heard these words, I remembered the words of the Lord which He spake unto me in the wilderness, saying that insomuch as thy seed shall keep my commandments, they shall prosper uh, in the land of promise and also and I also thought that they could not keep the commandments of the Lord according to the law of Moses, they should, that they should have the law. And I knew that the law was engraven on the plates. And again, I knew the Lord had delivered Laban into my hands that I might obtain uh, according to the commandments. All right, tell me what you think of this revelatory pattern. And I'm good for it, by the rec- for the record. Get an impression. Debate it. See the logic. Commit and Go notice that endlessly ruminating on it doesn't work do or do not choose and go live life make a decision and go with it this is a key to discipleship of christ disciples act they may not get it right but they are out there trying and i'm really telling you trying is just about all god really seems to care about Therefore I did obey the voice of the Spirit, and I took Laban by the hair of the head, and I smote off his head with a sword. And after I had smitten off his head with his own sword, I took the garments of Laban, and I put them upon mine own body, yea, even every wit, and I did gird on his armor about my loins. And after I had done this, I went forth into the treasury of Laban, And as I went forth toward the treasury of Laban, behold, I saw the servant of Laban, who had the keys of the treasury. That's convenient. And I commanded him in the voice of Laban. (laughs) How accurate was that? I don't know. That he should go with me into the treasury. Okay, for me, this is an argument for the authenticity of the Book of Mormon. Same as the Bible. Like who starts the, your foundational story in the Bible with we were slaves and couldn't fix things ourselves. We're pretty much pathetic. Likewise, who starts their claim of I'm a good guy story, Nephi, with murder, deception, and thievery? I think it's there because it's a real story happening in, in a real complex universe. Also, I would be very careful, in our modern, contextualized judgments on Nephi. It's a completely different time and place. I'm saying withhold judgment, but see the whole complexity of the story. It's real. He's not trying to make up something to make you like him. He is shaping the story to get you to like him, but he still seems to be telling you just what happened, at least what he saw of what happened. And he... The servant of Laban supposed me to be his master. For behold, uh, for he beheld the garments, like Laban's clothes, and also the sword pretty distinctive thing, it's very rare, fine steel, gold, all of that, girded about my loins. And he spake unto me concerning the elders of the Jews, he knowing that his master Laban had been out by night among them. I don't know what this meeting of the elders of the Jews was. It doesn't seem to have been an overly religious meeting because Laban is just slammed, but no idea here. And I spake unto him as if I had been Laban. I wonder how that goes. I wonder how suspicious it was. And I also spake unto him that I should carry the engravings which were upon the plates of brass to my elder brethren which were without the walls. Yeah, clever. I see what you did there, double statement. And I also bade him that he should follow me. And he supposing that I spake of the brethren of the church and that I was truly that Laban whom I had slain, wherefore he did follow me. I don't know why he hasn't followed him. He could just send it back home and say, I'll meet you there later. Would he discover Laban killed in the street? I don't know what he's trying to do. And he spoken to me many times concerning the elders of the Jews, maybe because Nephi is suspicious here, as I went forth into my brethren who were without the walls. And it came to pass when Laman, my older brother, saw me, he was exceedingly frightened. Yeah, and also Lamuel and Sam, and they fled from before my presence, for they supposed it was Laban, and that he had slain me, and had sought to take away their lives also. Now we're in a situation. And it came to pass that I called after them, in my normal voice, and they did hear me, Wherefore, they did cease to flee from my presence. Okay, fixed that problem, but started a whole nother problem. And it came to pass that when the servant of Laban beheld my brethren, he began to tremble and he was about to flee from before me and return to the city of Jerusalem. If he gets away, the penalty for murder is to be beheaded at the time. Nephi is not going to let that happen. So I Nephi being a man large in stature. I feel like you said that already. (laughs) but it must be a big part of his identity. And also having received much strength of the Lord, therefore I did seize upon the servant of Laban, held him that he should not flee. And it came to pass that I spake with him that if he would hearken unto my words, as the Lord liveth and as I live, even so that he would hearken unto our words, we would spare his life. And I spake unto him, even with an oath, that he need not fear. And he should be a free man, like unto us, if he would go down to the wilderness with us. Okay, so here's the thing Zoram is a slave, so he can run and die. I mean, this guy, Nephi, obviously already murdered your master, so. Or you can go along with this crazy person and maybe be free? There seems to be some lingering resentment later in the Book of Mormon history from his descendants being forced to come along. But for now, Zoram sees that this is the better immediate deal to go along, live, and maybe be free than to run and probably certainly die. I also spake unto him, Surely as the Lord commanded us to do this thing. And, we shall not, and shall we not be diligent in keeping the commandments of the Lord? Therefore, if we will go down into the wilderness to my father, thou shalt have a place with us. You're not going to be a slave. You're going to have a place. And it came to pass that Zoram did take courage at the words which I spake. Now Zoram was the name of the servant. And he promised that he would go down to the wilderness unto our father. Yea, and he made an oath unto us that he would tarry with us from that time forth. Now we were desirous that he should tarry with us for this cause that the Jews might not know concerning our flight into the wilderness because they're going to catch us and behead us lest they should pursue us and destroy us. And it came to pass that Zoram had made an oath unto us our fears did cease concerning him. And it came to pass that we took the plates of brass and the servant of Laban and departed into the wilderness and journeyed unto the tent of our father another two weeks down. Almost certainly Zorm, the slave, is blamed for the brutal murder of his master, leaving his body lying naked and beheaded in the street to be discovered in the early morning light. But he's nowhere to be found, and the case is not solved. And it came to pass that after we had come down into the wilderness unto our father, behold, he was filled with joy. And my mother Sarai was exceedingly glad, for she had mourned because of us. Now notice the words Nephi uses. She's basically doing exactly what Laman and Lemuel are doing, but he calls it mourning instead of murmuring. Also note that she's not being unreasonable. She had supposed we had perished in the wilderness. And she had complained, again, not murmur. Nephi is not grouping her with Laman and Lemuel. She had complained against my father, telling him that he was a visionary man. Now he quotes um, his mom here. Notice, anytime you quote somebody, why are they doing it? Behold, thou hast led us from the land of inheritance. My sons are no more. We perish in the wilderness. And after this manner of language had my mother complained against my father. And he says in response, he's quoting this dialogue. I know that I'm a visionary man. For if I had not seen the things of God in a vision, I should have not known the goodness of God, but had tarried at Jerusalem and had perished with my brethren. But we, And behold, I have obtained a land of promise, that Moses theme, in the which I do rejoice. Yea, and I know that the Lord will deliver my sons out of the hands of Laban and bring them down again into unto us in the wilderness." Okay, there's the quoted parts. After this manner of language did my father Lehi comfort my mother Sariah concerning us while we journeyed in the wilderness. Okay, now what is he trying to, to tell you here? He is just letting the argument be there and then he is rebutting it saying that there are visions and that there are a promised land and that there is surety and you can have faith. Just pay attention to these things i don't know that i'll always point them out, but pay attention to what is summarized and what is quoted now uh now I know uh, when we get back, when, uh, sorry, and when we had returned to the tent of my father, behold their joy was full, and my mother was comforted, and she spake first hand saying, "Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath commanded my husband to flee into the wilderness. yea, I also know of a surety that the Lord hath protected my sons just like Lehi had promised." And delivered them out of the hand of Le- Laban, and given them power whereby they could accomplish the works, the, excuse me, accomplish the things which the Lord had commanded them. And after this manner of language did she speak. So Nephi quotes first, firsthand here, right? And he is trying to get you to to really understand that this endeavor is sanctioned by God, and it's not Nephi telling you it. It's Le- Lehi first, and then Sariah witnesses of elder experienced trustworthy individuals the, this endeavor is sanctioned by God and protected by God and it came to pass that they did rejoice exceedingly and did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings there's more animals that really is going to be a sacrifice as they get hungry here unto the Lord and gave thanks to the God of Israel and after they had given thanks unto the God of Israel, my father Lehi took the records which were engraven upon the plates of brass, and he did search them from the beginning. And he beheld they did it contain the five books of Moses, which gave an account of the creation of the world and also of Adam and Eve, who are our first parents, and also a record of the Jews beginning, uh, from the beginning even down to the commencement of the king Zedekiah, king of Judah. So this is up to date and the prophecies of the holy prophets from the beginning even to the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah, up to date, all the prophets, and also many prophecies which have been spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah. This is the classic structure of the Hebrew Bible of Tanakh, right? Which is law, teachings, prophets. That's how they have it organized a little different um, than how we have it organized, or how Joseph Smith would have it organized, the fact that it's structured in a, a law... Teachings, prophet format is important. And it came to pass that my father Lehi also found upon the plates a genealogy of his fathers. Wherefore, he knew that he was a descendant of Joseph. Yea, even that Joseph, who was the son of Jacob, who was sold into Egypt, who was preserved by the hand of the Lord, just like they're being preserved, that he might preserve his father, Jacob, and all his household from perishing with famine. He's being preserved so he can preserve his family, see it? And they were also led out of captivity, led out of Jerusalem, and out of the land of Egypt by that same God who had preserved them. Same theme, he sees it here. And thus my father Lehi did discover the genealogy of his fathers. And Laban also was a descendant of Joseph, wherefore he and his fathers had kept the records. And now when my father saw all these things, he was filled with the Spirit, and began to prophesy concerning his seed, that these plates of brass should go forth unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and peoples who were of his seed. This is big. Universal salvation offered not just to the insular Jews, but to everybody. Wherefore he said that these plates of brass should never perish, neither should they be dimmed any more with time, that he prophesied many more things concerning his seed. And it came to pass that Thus far, I and my father had kept the commandments. Not Laman and Lemuel, even though they did all the same things. Notice how they're excluded. Um, commandments wherewith the Lord had commanded us. And we, the high Nephi, had obtained the records which the Lord had commanded us, and searched them, and found that they were desirable, yea, they upon yea, even of great worth unto us, insomuch that we could preserve the commandments of the Lord unto our children, Wherefore it was wisdom in the Lord that we should carry them with us as we journeyed in the wilderness towards the land of promise. Whew. It's a bit longer. Yeah, I know. What do you think? How do you experience pain and favor in this life? What do you see so far in Nephi's story? I think you get up, you get going, and you do something. Do something. Do it imperfectly, do it jinkly, fail. Seriously, faceplant, but do something. Imperfect action done with faith in Jesus Christ is better than you sitting there stressing about is this the right call? Stop. You will never know perfectly. This is a central tenet of mortal life. Trust in the Messiah. Come to earth, followed by 12 and do like he did. Get out there and do good. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.